You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. We will be in Luke chapter 1, and we're going to be in verses 56 through 80. Uh, The words will be on the screen in front of you. I would like you to follow along with me. Beginning in verse 56. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. They all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened, and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, and the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high Give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. Pray with me. Father, I thank you for your word. And I ask God that you would come now through the power of your spirit through the preaching of your word. And I pray, Father, that you would come and rest in our midst in such a way that our hearts would be transformed by you. I pray, Father, that you would come and give peace to our hearts, that you would give comfort to our hearts, that you would um, give a challenge to our hearts, that you would give healing our hearts. I pray, Father, that you would turn our hearts towards you and all of your mercy towards us. You've been so good to us, like Dave said earlier, in um, giving us the gift of your Son in this season, but the implication of that is that you have 
withheld from us what we actually deserve. So, Father, we are grateful to you, and we ask that you would come and speak to us. I pray, Father, that you would take the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart, that you would cause them to be acceptable in your sight and helpful to your people who are gathered here. We ask all of this trusting and knowing that you are our rock and our redeemer. It is in Jesus' name that we ask all of this. Amen. Maybe seated. So the Christmas season is—it's uh, a beautiful season, isn't it? it? Really is. Beautiful time of year. Probably my favorite season of the entire year. Um, all the lights, all the laughter, all the joy, all the Christmas movies, family gatherings. Food, gift-giving, did I say food? Food. Love the Christmas season. Really is a, a beautiful season. But it's also a, a season where some of our deepest unmet desires, some of our deepest struggles uh, get brought to the surface. Think about uh, some of these things that uh, I think should be listed on the screen for you. Uh, you think about uh, the pain of loss, and you think about the, uh, the frustration of loneliness, think about the, uh, the crippling effect of fear, or the confusing presence of doubt, the overwhelming control of lust, the deceptive power of selfishness, how about the inflating effect of pride? The devastating power of despair and, and depression, or, or the captivating clutches of uh, worry, anxiety. So the Christmas season has a uh, unique way of awakening these struggles deep within us with, with a force um, that, that I think and oftentimes leave us begging for mercy, right? When you think of that word mercy, what you think of is like a, a school ground, a playground bully who comes and twists your arm up behind your back and makes you yell for mercy, for relief, right? I think um, this season can cause us come face to face again with some of those unmet desires, some of those broken places uh, deep within us in a way that leaves us crying out, God, please, please be merciful to me. Please release me from this. So the question is, can you relate to that? Uh, as you think back through your week and as you think um, into this Christmas season, in what way can you connect to those different scenarios uh, that I um, built out for us? Because I think that uh, Zachariah and Elizabeth could relate to some of those things. Um, you take a look at the text again with me uh, at verses 56 through 63. Uh, basically what you see in these verses is Zachariah names his son, right? After being with Elizabeth for about three months, uh, Mary heads home. 
Um, I can imagine that those three months of these two ladies being together, both of them pregnant, I can imagine that they were uh, months that were full of joy, full of laughter, full of hope. I think, I think both those women were probably looking forward to bringing their two babies into the world. Um, even though if you do a study of both those women and you, you notice that both of them are in completely different stages of life, they got completely different circumstances going on, um, I'm sure it's probably a hope-filled time together. Um, but I also think that both of those women, both Elizabeth and Mary, uh, I believe that they knew that their babies would serve an eternal purpose. Elizabeth's baby would serve as the last of the Old Testament prophets who uh, would call God's people to repentance and to obedience. Uh, and then he would also announce the coming of the Messiah. Uh, Mary's baby, on the other hand, would be very different. That would be Jesus. And he would live a sinless life to die on a cross, be raised again on the third day, powerful victory over Satan's sin in the grave, so two totally different pregnancies, two totally different babies, but they both had eternal purposes. Now, I highly doubt that Mary and Elizabeth understood all the implications of what was going on um, with their pregnancies. Um, but I, I, I do think that they knew that their babies uh, were gifts from God. And they were designed with an eternal purpose. And these babies weren't just objects of earthly pleasure. And for those of you that have had babies or have children, you know that sometimes children can be a object of earthly pleasure for sure and enjoy them and have lots of fun with them, but they can also be objects of earthly displeasure too. I think that what Mary and Elizabeth knew is that these babies weren't merely objects of earthly pleasure. Their babies were full of eternal purpose. And those eternal purposes, I think, are very evident in the choosing of their names. Now, the choosing of Jesus' name later, as we're going to get to more next week and in the weeks following, means Messiah, Savior, God saves. Uh, the name uh, John has a different meaning. The name John means God is merciful. Choosing a name is always an exciting part of having a baby, right? And after Elizabeth gave birth to her baby, all of her neighbors, all of her relatives heard about the great mercy that the Lord had shown her, and they were all filled with joy. That's what the text tells us in 57 through 58. See, Elizabeth, um, if, you, if you go back and you read, you'll find out her story. Um, our stories are so important, and I think it's... Um, I think it's helpful to, to, to us to look into the Bible and see stories of people's lives. Because in those stories, we can kind of see ourselves, right? It is true the Bible is not about you and me. The Bible is about God. But the thing that I love about God is that he's a relational God. And relationships happen when stories connect. And, and things that happen in my life Connect maybe with things that happen in your life. And then when I see God moving in your life, and you hear about the way that God's moving in mine, then what happens? God kind of creates an intersection, right? So God's a very relational God, and we see that here as we read the story of Elizabeth. She, she was an older woman. 
don't know how old, but she was older. Perhaps uh, beyond the years of being able to have a baby. And up until this point, she had been unable to have a baby, even though she desperately wanted one. So can you imagine that place of desperation? I mean, it's Christmas season, and there's things during the Christmas season that we begin to say that we want, right? Um, maybe that we don't even notice throughout the rest of the year. Maybe that we're able to kind of stamp down a little bit. For some reason, during the Christmas season, we begin to think about things that we want a little bit more than other seasons because the culture around us that we live in here in America is caught up with this an Americanized version of Christmas that's all about commercialism, right, and, uh, and consumerism, all about what I can get for me. And so I think this season kind of awakens some of that inside of us. So you put yourself in Elizabeth's shoes and you think about the place of desperation that she would have been in, unable to have a baby for so long at that age. Can you imagine for her what it would be like to lawn for mercy? That feeling of, God, please release me from this earthly circumstance. Please remove this affliction from me. That's the desire for mercy. Anybody, anybody have that feeling deep down inside? Like, God, please remove this affliction from me. Please get me out of this circumstance. Please meet this desire, this need, this want. The reality is that infertility has been a cause for a, um, a deep struggle with, with a sense of worth or value uh, for, for many people over the generations. You, there's lots of stories throughout the Bible that we could point to that have lots of connection here. Well, the common thought in the Bible as you read these stories, and even as you read this one, is that if someone cannot have a baby, then they are someone who is living under a curse. Now, we, we, would, we would probably never want to say that, right? But there's a feeling of that, that if somehow you don't have a baby, you're not as valuable, and, and you're cursed, you're not blessed. That would be the sense. If that was you in that place, wouldn't you long for mercy? I mean, you may not be here desiring to have a baby, but maybe you desire to have something else that you can't have. Again, some serious affliction you wish was removed from you. You haven't received relief from that, mercy in that. Therefore, you don't feel blessed. You feel like you're walking under a curse. Can you imagine how you would respond if the Lord answered that prayer right now? What would that do inside of you? I, I mean, you think about, again, the Christmas season, you go back to the easy analogy. You've always wanted as a young kid, and you're looking under the Christmas tree for that gift, right? And you get it. Do you remember what that felt like? That's the feeling it might even be um, amplified, I think amplified for Elizabeth in this season as she gives birth to baby 
John. The question is, how would your neighbors and your friends respond? Neighbors and the friends and the relatives in this story, man, they're super excited to see what God has given, has done for Zechariah, for Elizabeth, that they have finally had a baby. They're so excited about this. They come over to circumcise the baby and to give him a name, right? But to their surprise, when they show up, what does Elizabeth do? Elizabeth decides to name the little boy John instead of Zechariah. That would have been the custom of that day would be to name babies after their fathers. And so this is very surprising to all the people that come over to celebrate with them. And so they're like, well, maybe the old lady's off a rocker. We're going to go talk to the husband and just see. So they go over to Zechariah. They ask him. And he agrees with Elizabeth. The little boy's name is going to be John in accordance with what the angel had spoken back in verse 13. As you study this out, and as I study this out, I found one author that made this note. He said that John's name was given to him by God. As you might notice if you go back, that the angel from God told Zechariah, this is what the baby's name is going to be. So um, John was named by God first. Zechariah second. John's name was given to him by God to express the child's true identity. I alluded to this earlier. His name simply means that God is merciful. Why is this significant? Why is that important for us? <clears throat> You'll notice maybe as we move through this today that there are lots of elements of mercy in uh, this story. But it's a reminder to us that God has withheld from us what we rightly deserve. If you've trusted in Christ, then you are a recipient of the gift of God's mercy. That's the gift under the tree. Under a different tree. Not a Christmas tree. Under a tree on a hill called Calvary. Under that tree where Christ's blood was poured out. Where his body was ripped to shreds. Where he died alone. That's the gift in that message. God's mercy. That God would withhold from you and I what we actually deserve. So by trusting in the work of Jesus at the cross, what you're trusting, if you've trusted in Him, is that He has paid the penalties, paid the price for your sin. That, that God the Father has withheld that penalty from you and He's given it to His perfect son instead so if you have a son if you have a child you think about what that means to let your son die so that all of the world could have an opportunity to live this is a merciful merciful thing and it's not just so much that the entire world had an infection that it was dying from it was that that, that entire world had made war with your son and had abused him tremendously that's the story of the gospel. It's mercy. So John the Baptist has an eternal purpose to uh, turn the hearts of the people to the tender mercy of God through his preaching. And Elizabeth and Zechariah both knew this because of what the angel had spoken to them previously in verses 15 and 17. As you're thinking about this, don't forget, Zechariah has been unable to speak. Okay. Found some allusions to that in the text when his tongue is loosed. He's been unable to speak for roughly nine months. 
You go back to verse 20, it kind of gives you some of the context for that. <clears throat> Before we dive into that too much, I want you to just think about this. What would it be like to be silent for nine months? Now, for some of us who really like to talk, nine seconds of silence might be hard, let alone nine months of silence, okay? Well, nine months of silence, contemplating the mercy of God. Nine months of silence, contemplating the mercy of God. I, I get nine minutes of silence, and I, I, I can't tell you all the things that go through my mind. So just to think about nine months of silence contemplating the mercy of God before naming your son after the mercy of God. Very powerful, powerful thing, I think. <coughs> In verses uh, 64 through 75 is where we see this taking place. <coughs> this is where Zechariah breaks his silence. <coughs> think about, well, what would you say what would be the first thing that would come out of your mouth after being unable to speak for nine months? Now, you think about Zechariah's silence um, for a minute to you. Let's dive into this with me. Now, why was he silent? Why was he unable to speak for nine months? Zechariah's silence, according to this story, was a consequence. It was a consequence for his unbelief back in verses 18 to 22. Zechariah simply could not believe that God was going to uh, uh, miraculously help his wife become pregnant at such an old age after being sterile for so many years. It was because of his unbelief that he was silent for nine months. It was a consequence. He would be unable to speak until the day that all of the things that the angel spoke took place, according to verses 18 to 22. And this, 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 this thing that the angel spoke, it didn't just include the birth of John the Baptist, it also included the obedience of Zechariah. So it wasn't just, hey, you're going to have a baby, and when that happens, you'll be able to speak. There was an obedience factor to this as well because there were things that Zechariah was instructed to do, namely naming his son John. It's a significant moment when this happens. See, Zechariah's obedience to the word of God through the angel preceded the praise that came out of his mouth. The obedience of Zechariah preceded the praise that came out of his mouth. There's one author that notes it this way. He says at the moment Zechariah opens his mouth, he blesses the Savior before blessing his son. That's, that's a fascinating thing to think about. He blesses the Savior before blessing his son. The same author goes on to say this. He says that this reminds us the genuine faith always expresses itself in jubilant praise. Authentic faith always expresses itself in jubilant praise. He goes on to say, where there is no real worship, we may wonder whether there is any true faith at all. 
there's not a presence of praise in your life, not a presence of worship in your life, it would be because there's no authentic faith in your life. And you need to have a coming to Jesus moment. Another way to think about this is that the consequences that Zechariah faced had a purpose. The consequences are never merely punishment. They may have a punitive punishment aspect to them. That's never merely the only reason. The consequences of Zechariah's unbelief, I think, were actually a merciful act of correction by God. I mean, how, how, how unmerciful would it be for God to withhold the correction that you or I need? And that would be, that would not be a God that I'd want to trust. If God could stand back and see me heading off the cliff in my sin and just stand back with his arms crossed and say, sucks to be you. That's not merciful. But God, in his mercy, inflicts consequences on Zechariah and what was produced from those merciful consequences. It was a heart of faith-filled worship leads me to ponder what happens in my own heart when I suffer the consequences of my own unbelief. What happens in yours when you suffer the consequences of your unbelief? See, when Zechariah breaks his silence in verses 64 through 66, he can't help but to speak words of blessing about the God who had inflicted him. He doesn't he hasn't sat there for nine months getting bitter and angry at God because of the consequences that he got himself into. It's a mark of maturity in Zechariah, right? To be able to come out of that nine months and worship the Lord, it's a mark of true faith. He can't help but to speak words of blessing about the God who had inflicted him with those nine months months of silence. And here's what happens. Notice what, what happens in the trajectory of the text. Who hears him? Who hears Zechariah's praise? All the people. They heard him speak. And when they heard him speak, what happened in them? They weren't like, oh, poor Zechariah. It's so bad that you were silent for so long that you paid the consequences of your unbelief. Uh, they didn't do what we do in our culture so often where we come along and we, you know, kind of like little kid gloves. So sorry you feel so bad about what you got yourself into. No coddling taking place there. Why? Because what Zechariah is doing is he's praising God out of the midst of those consequences. And what happens? All the people hear him speak and they become consumed with a reverent fear of God. Not the kind of fear where you're like, oh God, you're hiding in the corner. But a kind of fear where you're like overwhelmed and consumed with the majesty and the glory and the goodness and the faithfulness and the mercy of God. They couldn't stop talking about who this kid was going to be. John the Baptist is going to be a great man of God. People everywhere are getting really excited to see where this kid's going. They're excited to see what God's going to do through him. 
But don't miss the fact in this story that Zechariah's unbelief, it led to consequences that then resulted in his faith-filled worship. And then what came out of that is an entire countryside that is consumed with the fear and the admiration of God in his mercy. That's the result. An entire countryside is impacted by the presence of a merciful God because one man didn't believe and paid the consequences for it. It just takes this idea of consequences and kind of turns it, I think, in its proper perspective, if you ask me. It's a biblical perspective, I think. That I think has been easy for us to lose in the world that we live in today. So the question, I think, for all of us in application is like this. You might write this down. In what ways is God correcting your unbelief right now? What consequences of unbelief are you experiencing in this season? Does God feel distant to you in some ways, maybe? Are, are you struggling to hear God speak somehow? Is it possible that that those consequences, that thing that you're sensing, that this is God's mercy towards you? Is it possible? Could it be that God, in His merciful act of inflicting you with consequences, then He's actually developing a work through those consequences? I can imagine how proud and how excited John the Baptist's parents were I would think, I mean, I've had a few children. Um, well, I haven't had them. My wife had them, but we have a few children. Um, I would think that the moment that Zechariah was able to talk, that he would uh, want to brag on his own son. You know, that's typically what you do when you have a baby. You start sending text messages, right? Send them pictures. You know, this is their link. This is their name. They're so cute. Got a bow, got a little blue hat, whatever it may be. <clears throat> Zechariah is not interested in bragging on his own son first. Alluded to that earlier. Um, he actually brags on God first. All those nine months of silence, all of those consequences, pondering the mercy of God, is it erupted into an overflow of praise to God in these moments. Zechariah's song of praise that he sings here in verses 68 through 75 basically highlights some of the most massive categorical truths about God's mercy. He used God's mercy as the overriding truth. And then just look at what Zechariah says in the first portion of this in 68 through 75. <clears throat> Zechariah reminds us, if you're tracking with me, that God is blessed. God is blessed. He's not left us here to rot. He came to visit us in our helpless state. He came to redeem us from the clutches of our enemies. He came to save us from the penalty of our sin. He came to make good on his centuries-old promise of redemption. Dave alluded to it earlier, just even the portion that Dave alluded to, 700 some odd years between the time that the, 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 the prophecy was given to the time that the virgin gave birth. But it's so much bigger than that because it goes back to the Garden of Eden. Centuries old promise of redemption. He came to deliver us from the power of Satan and the influence of sin and the totality of the grave so that we might freely serve him without fear as we grow in godliness 
forever. It's an eternal promise. Is this not an awesome picture of a merciful God? Is that not an awesome picture of a merciful God that would do this for us? What would it be like to spend nine months silently contemplating that picture of a merciful God? What would it be like to spend nine months contemplating that picture? How blessed would you be by the opportunity to be consumed for nine months by the mercy of God? How merciful would it be for God to actually leave you in that silence so you could contemplate that mercy? What kind of faith would it produce in you? What kind of praise would that produce in you? Here's the reality. People who are blessed, not cursed. People who are blessed have a gigantic picture of God's mercy. What it means to be a blessed person is to have a massive picture of God's mercy. And blessed people who have a massive picture of God's mercy, those people, those kinds of people, they're a blessing to others. And they're a blessing to God. And you can see this in the final portion of our text, verses 76 through 80. You see Zechariah blessing his son. Zechariah blesses his son in the end of the story. So you take a pause for a minute from the text and build some context for us that I think is applicable. It's that uh, old saying that says something about sticks and stones may break my bones, but words, they cannot hurt me. We know that's not true. I would rather get a stone thrown at me or get hit with a stick than have somebody say words that hurt me. Agreed? I I can look at the wound from a stick. I can look at the bump from the rock. And I can watch it go away. And I can put some ice on it. And most likely the effect will not still be there at some point. Isn't it crazy how the words we speak have a tendency to leave long-lasting effects that that you just remember and you can't shake? You see, the words we speak to and about other people can have the effect of either blessing or cursing. Life and death, I believe, according to the Scriptures, life and death is on the line when we use our words. Not like in the old, like, Pentecostal, you know, uh, you know, health, wealth, and prosperity movement where you can somehow speak words of life and bring somebody back from the dead type of weird theology. It's strange. <clears throat> More like we actually can be a blessing through our words or we can be a curse through our words. We can speak words of death or words of life to one another. We can either tear people down or we can build people up. And here's what happens. We typically want to uh, blame our words towards someone else or about someone else. We want to blame our words to them or about them on their behavior. They did X, Y, Z. They said X, Y, Z. So they are to blame for the way that I'm now talking about them. Tracking with me? We all fall into this pretty easily, I think. It's been going on since the garden, okay? 
As soon as Adam and Eve ate the fruit, they both started blaming each other. And then I think it was Adam who was like, God, it's actually your fault. You gave me the woman. Oh. Like, wouldn't that been interesting to be a fly on the wall in that moment? You know? I mean, the blame game's been around since the Garden of Eden. That's my point. So what happens in this oftentimes when it comes to words is that you and I wind up living our lives under the control of other people. And then we spend our lives reacting to them rather than responsibly responding to them. This kind of attitude, it's, it's really built on, on a faulty notion that I am just unable to be response-able. Play on words. Right? Responsible, response-able. And we just play the victim card. Right? I got triggered! Right? I can only be reactive. The reality, in, in the midst of all of this, again, building some context where we go to the text, the reality is the condition of my heart is to blame for the way that I speak to or about someone else. But, but here's the truth. The truth is that if my heart is full of the God of mercy, then how am I going to be led to speak to or about other people? Imagine the implication of that question as it relates to your interaction with your screaming kid. Or imagine uh, the implication of this question as it relates to your interaction with uh, the crazy people on social media. Uh, imagine the implication of this question. If you've forgotten the question, let me go back and ask the question again. If my heart is full of the God of mercy, then how will I speak to or about other people who have been created in God's image and are just as broken as I am? Imagine the implication of this question as it relates to your interaction with your screaming kid, crazy people on social media. How about the insanity of the... uh, the political world, anybody watch any part of the impeachment hearings this week? I don't care what side of the fence you're on on that one. That's tough, right? We're in an interesting season as a nation. How about the waitress that's running late with your food? How about the coworker that's being a pain, the boss that's being a jerk, the spouse that's being lazy, the person that believes abortion is okay? about the person who thinks that sexual sin of any kind isn't a big deal. How do you talk about them? How do you relate to them? If your heart is full of the God of mercy, then how will you speak to and about other people? Imagine, imagine with me as you're reading through this text how this massive picture of a merciful God could impact your interaction in the world that you live in. Imagine the result of this in your family, your church, your neighborhood, your city, your world. Imagine the social transformation that could happen if each of us began to get a hold of a magnified picture of a merciful God. Ask this question, what social issues? You look out into the world around us. The things that frustrate you, the things that grab your attention, the things that get you, right? The things that make you jump off your couch and scream in society. Imagine what those social issues 
Imagine how they could be transformed just by a simple, increased image of a merciful God in your own heart. Before we move to the text again, there's another there's an author who, um, commenting on this, he notes that John the Baptist would be intensely focused. No, don't miss this. This is, this is important. John the Baptist would be intensely focused, as a preacher of God's word, intensely focused on what? Spiritual transformation in the midst of a culture that deeply longed for social transformation. You put yourself back in the shoes of these people. It's not like our world today is any different than theirs. We just, in our pride, think that life is so bad now compared to the way it was then. And either pride, or we just don't know because we haven't studied it, right? The world then was tough. The place that John the Baptist was going to minister amongst needed to be transformed just as much as our society today. Spiritual transformation amidst a culture that longed for social transformation. Um, this author says that as the forerunner to the Messiah, he would point to uh, the truth that, uh, that this, that, that there can be no social transformation without spiritual regeneration. Let me say this again. There can be no social transformation without spiritual regeneration. What does that mean? Oh, this is the way that I say this. As I always say that, you know, you really can't expect a nation full of lost people to act like Christians. Like, why would we expect a nation full of lost people to act like Christians? I mean, just in our city alone. It's like there's a church on every street corner, but the UNL study from 2009 tells us that roughly 70% of Hastings does not have a church home. What does that tell you about the percentage of actual Christians in our community? That tells you that most of the people in our community are not actually Christians. Which means that if you apply that number out, that we have a nation that is full of lost people. Why would I expect lost people to act like Christians? I have no expectation for that. I have a desire. That's different than an expectation. I mean, if you think about this, how frustrating is it to just get Christians to act like Christians? Okay, I mean, just look at yourself in the mirror for a minute. Like, <laughs> that frustrates the ever-living heck out of me. Me, that I don't act like a Christian as much as I want myself to. I'm probably not going to, you know, <laughs> I should not let myself get bent out of shape that a lost country doesn't act like Christians. They're only acting in accordance to their nature. Nevertheless, Despite that, I still have a very strong underlying frustration that our nation full of lost people does act that way. And I desperately want to see our nation transformed by a relationship with Jesus. I want to see that. And that's basically, hopefully now I've set a context for us to think about what Zechariah says about his son. Here's what he says, right? He speaks this word of blessing over his son in verses 76 through 79. Starts out by singing this beautiful Christmas song about the Savior. He sings a song of blessing about his son. It's intensely focused on the work of the Savior, isn't it? And John the Baptist, he basically says, is going to be God's man. He's going to be a man who represents the Lord. Going to be a man who prepares the path or the road for the King of Kings to travel into the hearts of sinful men and women. 
He's going to be a man who preaches salvation and forgiveness of sin. He's going to be a man who preaches the tender mercy of God to people who've lived in darkness all their lives. His words are going to be like sweet sunshine to people who've only known the darkness of their sin-filled souls. What if that was you where you had the opportunity to speak the sweetness of the gospel of a merciful God into the life, the dark life of someone who is far from him, rather than the condemnation that we oftentimes speak. What if the church got a hold of a merciful God? What if a church didn't just get a hold of a merciful God, but let that merciful God get a hold of the church? What if? There's no reason that the church in America should be declining. Actually, there is a reason. And the reason is because as a church, we've bought into different saviors rather than the Savior that we should trust in. That's the reason. So John the Baptist preaching um, is going to be like words of life to those who had lived under the curse of death. It's going to be a man who guides anxious and fearful people into the presence of God's merciful peace. John the Baptist simply is going to be a blessed man because of God's mercy. As a blessed man, it's going to be a blessing to God and to others. I don't know how the Lord is going to use this in your heart, um, but I think primarily the way that he used it in my heart this week is just to remind me simply the picture of the way that he has been merciful towards me. In conclusion, the, the, the only thing I think I would say um, is that uh, the final verses really caught my attention. Uh, the picture of God's tender mercy whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. I, sometimes this picture is different for those who have been saved out of real devastating gross backgrounds. And you guys know I, I was saved out of a life of drugs and alcoholism and humanizing and just real deep dark sin. And I, you know, for some of those of you that have walked with Jesus for longer than I've been alive, um, uh, it may connect with you differently. But the reality at the end of the day is each and every one of us, um, if we're not in Christ, uh, we, we, we come to God as sinners. Every sin is the same. You don't need to have like a, uh, a big, massive, I burned out and almost died type of story to recognize the mercy of God. You may be in a place this morning where you've just lost sight of the mercy of God. And I just pray that that's what God does for us this morning is enlarges that picture. He's given you and I what we do not deserve. That's His grace. But in doing so, He's withheld what we actually deserve. How could that impact the world you live in? That's the big question. Moving forward. I want to pray for us. Father, thank You for Your Word. Pray, God, that You would just be with us as we close. We trust that You will be. And we ask, God, that you would just reveal more of your merciful heart to us in these closing moments. God, we love you and we thank you for Jesus in this Christmas season. Amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.